turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This morning we were in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. This, this evening we'll be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you would again pray with me, I need God's help. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, a day that we are commanded by you to fill up with thoughts of you, with worship of your holy name, with acts of necessity and mercy, private and public worship. And Father, we thank you that we are allowed to meet again this afternoon to fill up our souls, to challenge our hearts, to become more like Christ. Lord, would you grant in this evening our minds to be awakened, sharp, our bodies to be awakened and sharp and to be attentive to your word. Help us to, help us to soak in what you would have us to hear today, this evening. Grant the preacher, again, a power by the Holy Spirit. He is in much weakness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in the Christian life, one of the things among many that we have been called to do is to persevere. It's been granted to us, as the New Testament says, to suffer for Christ, and we've been called to persevere. The race is long. The difficulties are manifold. The temptations are as close as our very own skin. We only have one shot. This race of the Christian life is not a repeat. We all know that, right? If we are not careful, disillusionment can set in as we face the difficulties ahead. How we are to persevere is the subject of our text. And we're going to seek to understand our text in four points this morning. First, we're going to look at the motive of perseverance, the motive of perseverance, Secondly, we'll look at the manner of perseverance. Third, the mandate of perseverance. And fourth, the man of perseverance. So leading up to this point, the apostle had reasoned with the Jewish Christians regarding the confidence they should have to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ. He urges them to hold fast to their confession he warns them that if they go on sinning, deliberately sinning, after receiving the truth of Christ, there remains no sacrifice for sin. They must leave dead works or they must die in them. He reminds them that many of them had suffered and struggled, even publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and how in the past they had accepted these things with joy. Don't throw away your confidence, Paul would say. Press on, he goes on to say, to show proof of those who did not shrink back, but of faith and preserve their souls. He gives example after example in Hebrews chapter 11 of the faithful in the ages past. That's the content of the entire 11th chapter. But our text begins, chapter 12, begins with an important word, therefore. And what we need to ask ourselves is, what is the therefore, therefore? So, chapter 12 begins with therefore to reason from these former things. 
And so we meet with our first point. The first point being the motive of perseverance. Notice the motive of perseverance. Read the text together. Therefore, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run, the, run with endurance the race that is set before us. So notice the motive of perseverance. First of all, we need to notice that we have witnesses in the Christian life. These witnesses are not so much those who are looking down upon us from heaven and approving or disapproving, or disapproving of our works, but they are setting, God is setting before us examples of things that ought to be done. All of these examples in the preceding chapter are those that spoke clearly, as we talked about this morning. And they spoke that faith will carry a believer through any circumstance. Peter makes this plain, 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them, those of old, in the Old Covenant, that they were serving not themselves, but you. But you. These witnesses, these martyrs, testify to the life of faith for you. They testified that we must believe and obey God. They testified that faith risks all things worldly to gain all things heavenly. They testified that faith alone in Christ alone brings you home. They witnessed to these things, and our text says so. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Notice also that we have a cloud of them. God has not left us with some obscure desert witness and an obscure desert religion. He's left us with a multitude of witnesses. This is what the word cloud signifies, both contextually and figuratively. It's a numberless throng of witnesses for us. We could use the words the apostle uses in the previous chapter. He says at the end of chapter 11, what more shall I say? As he lists this panoply of of, uh, faithful witnesses, what more shall I say? For time would fail for me to tell of all the examples we have. We have a cloud of witnesses Paul reasons that so great is this cloud that we ought to be moved by their examples to do certain things. More on that in just a moment. But notice also this cloud surrounds us. The text again. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now some of your translations, maybe unfortunately, I don't know, uh, say we just have a cloud of witnesses which is a fine translation, but I think it misses the force of what Paul is trying to say here. This cloud surrounds us. It's not something we simply possess, though that's true. It's something we walk in and live in and compete among. We see them set before us in every page of Scripture. Not only this, but being surrounded by this cloud of witnesses alludes to this idea that Paul is going to unfold in just a moment, that of an Olympic competition. In the Greek, it's the agon. You can hear agony in our English. The agon, the struggle, the fight, the race of faith. And Paul doesn't exclude himself from this exhortation. He says these are examples for us. We 
are surrounded. Notice the humility of the apostle there. Because he was an apostle doesn't mean that he didn't need encouragement as well from those who were not called as he was called. Well, this brings us to a few observations about our first point, the motive of perseverance. And I think it's fairly plain. Uh, Understanding church history is a divine mandate from God. That's a very obvious point, I think, from the first verse. Understanding church history is a divine mandate. Here we have in the text a clarion call, not just a cursory reading, but to a robust study of the works of God in the lives of those in ages past. If Christian biography is not in heavy rotation in your reading, you're missing a major source of encouragement in the fight. Let me say that again. If you don't have Christian biography in heavy rotation, whether audio, reading, whatever it may be, you're missing a major source of encouragement in the fight of faith. So understanding church history is a divine mandate. Observation number two, church history proves the triumph of God over Satan. Church history proves the triumph of God over Satan. Church history is not only a record of Christ, but it is a record of the Antichrist. We must be aware of his schemes. The kingdom of God wins, of course, and we can never be reminded of this too often. But through the agency of church history, we better know our enemy and we can rejoice at his downfall as it's recorded in that history time and time and time again. So church history proves the triumph of God over Satan. But third observation, faith speaks even when we are long gone. Faith speaks even when we are long gone. Through faith, though being dead, you can speak to your children. You can speak to your grandchildren and many future generations. Faith speaks long after we are gone. And you can speak those things to your children and grandchildren for many, many generations. So first of all, the motive of perseverance. Second point, notice the manner of perseverance, the manner of our perseverance. Look at the text again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we are to do two things. Number one, we are to lay aside every weight. And two, we are to lay aside the sin which clings so closely to us. This is the manner of our perseverance in this world. Just as our, as our cloud of witnesses did, so we must do, and Paul says it again, we also, graciously including himself in the company of those who are called, what was not needful for the race must be laid aside. The saints of old had a consideration of what would slow them down in this race, and we must also. But what does Paul mean here by laying aside every weight? I think he's speaking of this. He's speaking of things that in and of themselves are not sinful things. They are truly innocent things. We know this because he mentions them alongside the word sin. Look, let us also lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. He mentions that in conjunction with sin. Categorically, we could say then, weights in his analogy are external things to us that have great influence on us and hinder our race. They are innocent, but ultimately impediments. Now, in keeping with this illusion of the agon, the Olympic race, this agonizing race, who, who has uh, run a marathon or run to your mailbox or run at any point in the, in, in the past? <laughs> okay, any long distance. You know that in running, a runner strips himself of everything that would hinder him from running the race. He strips himself of things that are not necessarily sinful, but proved to be unwise for the journey, right? It was an act of self-denial, considering what he had been called to do. The consideration of spiritual impediments takes spiritual discipline. Sensitivity to the Spirit's leading and spiritual wisdom. Now, speaking of self-denial, gets many into the territory of legalism. Many fall into this checklist mentality and many impose their own standards onto others and judge others by them. But we cannot forsake pausing here and asking hard questions of ourselves for fear of overcorrection or being labeled legalistic. So I'm just going to throw some words out there for your consideration. I'll start a list. No list is complete. You finish that list, okay? But I want you to ask yourself, as you hear these words, are they wise for the journey? Are they wise for the journey? Now, again, let me preface this. These things are not naturally sinful things. But I want, I want you to ask yourself, are they wise for the journey? And are they wise in the capacity in which you use them? That streaming TV service, is it wise for the journey? That music artist or genre of music, that guilty pleasure, classic rock, that video game, that hobby, that collection of things, that friend, those books, that social media app, that job. Categorically, we must challenge the drawing of our affections even for those things that are indifferent in Scripture. There's no mandate saying a social media app is sinful. But you have to ask yourself as a Christian, is it wise for the journey? Is it wise for the journey? So observation here. There's just, this is just a bottom line observation. We, we have to wrestle with this. Whatever does not help hinders. Can we agree with that? Whatever does not help hinders. As innocent as it may be, if it does not help, it hinders your progress to heaven. We only come to know this by running. Try running with 80 pounds of baggage on your back. You'll immediately know what's necessary for the journey. Stand still 
And you can argue till you're blue in the face about not being hindered by those things. Run, however, and you will soon find out what is weighing you down. Calvin says this, We are already ourselves more tardy than we ought to be, so no other causes of delay should be added. Whatever does not help hinders. Now, this is a cause for deep consideration of the mundane things in our lives. Whatever does not help hinders. Second observation. This is kind of a bottom line observation here. The only way that naturally non-sinful things in this world become weighty to us in the race is when our affections are set on them. Let me say that again. The only way naturally non-sinful things in this world become weighty to us in our race is when our affections are set upon them. If anything in this life is above Christ, it is a weight. That's it, beloved. If anything in this life is above Christ, it is a weight. That's a fixed principle of your existence in Christ. I think we're just surprised at how many things are above him in our life. Why do all these things weigh so much, you may ask? How do you know it's above Christ and has root in your heart? Well, can you give that thing up with joy? How do you know it's above Christ and has a root in your heart? Can you give it up with joy? So naturally non-sinful things in this world become weights to us in our race when our affections are set upon them. So how do we lay these naturally non-sinful things aside. As you're dealing with the Lord and you're questioning these things in your life, if you want to run harder after Christ and you notice these are weights weighing you down, how do we lay these naturally non-sinful things aside? I think we can do a few things. Number one, we must always be willing to joyfully let go the things God calls us to let go. This assumes several things. You're in communion with Christ regarding your walk in this world. We often lose sight of how short our lives are and how much takes up our time and thus takes away our joy of running after Christ. You also have to walk constantly with the Lord here. We must be on a constant watch in our hearts for things that would creep into our relationship with him. Think about this. This is startling. Studies show that the amount of time spent on Facebook or Instagram is five times more than on an illicit website. You spend five times more on Facebook and Instagram than you do on an illicit website, or the public does. Nearly 80 minutes a day on social media is the average. The average social media user will spend nearly a year of their entire life on Instagram. Three hours a day on average for TV weighs in at an astonishing nine years of your life, an entire decade watching TV. Binge watching Netflix probably makes that stat uh, skyrocket a little bit. Think about this, beloved. The point is this. Satan does not have to get us hooked on the illicit. He just needs us to waste our time. But you also 
have to be ready to joyfully let go the things God calls you to give up. When you discover that those things are a hindrance to your race, you have to kill the affections you have for those things. If the Lord has your heart, he has every part of you. If he has your heart, he has every part of you. So also, we must cultivate a heavenly appetite. Many, if not all, of our struggles in letting the things of the world go come from a dullness of our appetite for heavenly things. To put it bluntly, we eat too much from the trough of the world. And so heavenly things taste very strange to us. Letting things of the world go becomes harder and harder the more embedded you become in them. Spend more time with Christ and Christ will become sweeter to you. But also we have to realize that some things are in our life for a season. Uh, When that season is up, let it go. Let that thing go and let it sail into the the sunset. But how do we also lay naturally non-sinful things aside? We're called to lay, I'm sorry, the second thing we're called to do besides laying these naturally non-sinful things aside is we are called to lay aside the sin that so easily clings to us. Look at the text again. So let us lay aside every weight, those naturally non-sinful things that are weighing us down, and also the sin which clings so closely. If the former things prove to be tricky to handle, and you're wrestling in your mind right now, what are those weighty things in my life that are not naturally sinful, but are weighing me down? This latter category proves to be the trickiest. It's tricky because it's us. It's us we're dealing with now. Not things external to us, but us. Our own sinful flesh. Paul is referring to this battle within. Weights are battles without. Sin that so closely clings to us is the old self. The battle within. Paul's not referring to sins particularly but to the sinful nature, the inclinations, the leanings, the swayings, the influences of the flesh. Elsewhere, Paul calls this a principle or law in our members in Romans chapter 7. It's a fixed principle of our existence, this side of heaven. It's always with us. It's always waging war. If we picked up and left an old life behind, guess what follows you every mile you put behind you on the road? Your own heart. You can't run from it. It has access to all of us. Every faculty is swayed under its influence. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your inclinations. Strip strip away everything outwardly. Become a monk. Live in a cave. And you still have one great weight remaining. Your flesh. And we must give it no quarter. To lay aside the sinful flesh, holy, we must resolve to quit complaining and make war. We must kill every sin in particular. This is the crucifixion of the flesh, beloved. You must crucify it universally, and you must crucify it absolutely. Every sin, big and small, powerful and pesky, no matter what it may be, all of them, we must wage equal war. Listen to Paul in Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Well, 
we're all like drunk peasants falling off the donkey on one side or the other with these issues. We fall off on the side of legalism off the donkey and lawlessness sometimes on the other side of the donkey. Both of these things threaten our race. Balance, being grounded in the middle is good ground. So this brings me to an observation about our fight for holiness, our running the race, laying aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Observation number one here is back off your brother. Back off your brother. Many of you have house rules, okay? And those are your house rules, but they are not another man's house rules. You may esteem one thing in one way, and another man may esteem another thing in another way. That's Romans 14, right? God alone is the Lord of the conscience, not you. And he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men. If those things are contrary to his word or not contained in it, your heart is free. Listen to James 4.12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So as we consider these things about the non-sinful things that weigh us down, there's a very real temptation for us to look across town or think of that person in our brain and begin to go, yeah, they ought to do the same things. And you instantly make them a slave of your preference, not of the word of God. Many times we see someone steering it into the ditch. We muscle up and we suggest these strictures in their lives that the Lord simply does not command. We overcorrect and yank the steering wheel and put this proverbial ox in the ditch of legalism. And we try to perfect by the flesh what was begun by the Spirit. This was the sin of Peter among the Galatians. And we cannot do the same. So in this fight for holiness, in this race, back off your brother a little bit, okay? But number two, observation number two, beware of yourself. Back off your brother, but beware of yourself. Anyone who claims Christian liberty and practices sin or cherishes any sinful lust perverts the gospel to their own destruction. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So beware of yourself. Anyone who claims liberty, Christian liberty, and practices sin perverts the gospel. Observation three, be an example and an encouragement in the race. No one can argue with a life that radiates Christ. Run hard, radiate Christ to the culture, radiate Christ to those around you, and those who have impediments in the race will be challenged to leave those things behind. They'll see you running hard after Christ, and you probably won't have to say a word. So first we saw the motive of our perseverance. Second, we saw the manner of our perseverance. 
Third, look at the mandate. See the mandate of our perseverance. We're not simply to lay aside things, non-sinful things and sinful things, but we must also run. Look at the verse again. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word run is a powerful and vivid word. I've mentioned it twice now in the Greek. It's agona, agona. You hear our English word agonize. It means conflict, strife, work, toil, labor. Owen says that it's used for anything, work or exercise, which there is a striving and a contending unto the utmost of men's abilities. And Paul uses this in the context of running as an Olympic athlete. So this means some very obvious things. When Paul says, let us agonize, let us agonize with endurance the race that is set before us. This means some obvious things for us. Number one, this race is difficult. This is a difficult race. Owen says again, contending with all our might must be in it without which all expectation of success in a race for mastery is vain and foolish. Don't enter the race thinking you're going to plod along and fall behind. You must agonize. We must be, as Ephesians 6.10 says, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might in order to run. So the race is difficult. It's an agonizing race. But it also requires skill. We run, and for those of you who have run a marathon, you know that you calculate that race. You don't start out at the beginning of the race in a dead sprint for 50 yards, and then the rest of the race is limping along until you reach the finish line, and maybe somebody's dragging you across the line when you get there. Start out fast and hard, and halfway through, you're spent, and the finish line looks 10 times further away than it was when you began. Start out too slow, and you're hustling to play catch-up, wondering why everyone around you is so far ahead. So this race as an agona, as an as a endurance race, requires commanding skill. You must run a calculated race. You must pace yourself. Thirdly, all, must, all who enter this race must hold out until the end. There are no prizes for those who do not finish. There are no prizes for those who do not finish. There are no participation awards in the race of the faith. No one gets a trophy for just showing up. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run. Run, beloved that you may obtain it. Congratulations, someone might say. Last place. Congratulations, you disqualified. Here's your participation award. Round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody does that. Run that you may obtain it. The older I get in Christ, the more profoundly I feel the words of the Apostle Paul here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
My life in Christ early on, I thought there's nothing that will get in my way. I felt indestructible. And then I met myself and the temptations of the world. And I realized that that fight was going to be a long, hard fight. So when Paul says, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I've kept the faith, I feel those words more profoundly now than I did when I began. Only then will we receive the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award us on that day. We must finish, brothers. We must finish, sisters. We must finish the race. So Paul tells us to to run with endurance, to run with endurance. Now, some of your translations here may say patience or patient endurance. Having entered a race that's described as toil and conflict, we have need for patient endurance. Think about it. We have to have patient endurance in, in the light of present difficulties, We are to bear out a love and a submissiveness to God and patiently endure the race. It's, think about this, patience is is something like this. It's the bridling of an anxious mind in the face of uncertainty. Think about uncertainty and what's the first thing your mind does? The gears turn, the gears turn. Patient endurance is the bridling of an anxious mind in the face of uncertainty. Patient endurance is the quietness of your soul in the face of a prolonged deliverance. When you're suffering long for the Lord in some way, your soul can well up before God and ask that question, why, Lord? Why? How long? How long will I suffer? Patient endurance is the steady longing of the heart for the will of God to be done in the face of unseen promises. It's the possession of your your inner man, self-control in the face of provocation, of evil, of persecution. That's running with patient endurance, beloved. We have to do it with endurance in the light of present difficulties, but also in view of the future promises we have. We are to wait with an expectant and changeless hope. This changeless hope is set on the changeless promises of God, found in the changeless word of God. That's running with patient endurance. This is the race of endurance, a persistent, patient progress. Oak trees don't grow overnight. Mushrooms do. Oak trees do not. We must let patience have its perfect work in all things. So we have to run this race with endurance. But think about this. Look at the text again. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There are no hidden agendas in this race, beloved. This race has been laid plainly before you in the gospel by Christ. He has designed this race. He has paved the course. He has laid out the reward. There's been no deception on his part with what is, what is required. You've been called to crucify yourself. This is the call of the gospel. This is the entry point of the race. It 
will cost you everything. Everything. Listen to Luke 14. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Universal negative. Cannot be my disciple. If we meet with difficulty, beloved, we have no excuse for our complaints. Think about that. If we meet with difficulty, we have no excuse for our complaints. His terms are clear. Did we not choose this? Observation from this, number one. The fact that he has set this race before us gives us a great consolation in times of trial. He has set this race before us. He has chosen you for this race. One of the greatest things we face in trial is the uncertainty of why and the uncertainty of how long it will last. The uncertainty of why and the uncertainty of how long it will last. Now, I don't know about you. I'm maybe not the most super spiritual person in the room, but there have been many times when I felt like I was suffering and I just needed to put my hands on what I was fighting I couldn't tell what I was fighting. Get a grasp of why I'm here in this moment. I needed something solid to to grab, to, to punch, to fight. Something to fight to conquer the suffering I was experiencing. When we suffer as Christians, we know, we know that this has been marked out for us. We just have to remind ourselves that this is the case. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 9, 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He knew the path marked out for him, and we know ours. Knowing what we have been called to give in this race gives us encouragement to keep running. So the fact that this race has been set before us gives us us a great consolation in times of trial. Second observation on this point, the gospel is an invitation for nothing short of the death of self. And I just repeat the words of our Lord, Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole whole world and forfeits his soul? So we've seen the motive of our perseverance. We've seen the manner and the mandate of our perseverance. But lastly, as we close, I want you to consider the man of perseverance. The man of perseverance. Look at verse 2. Let's start back at verse 1 so we get a little context and flow here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So notice the man of perseverance. Up to this point, we've been given many examples of faith. Now we have set before us the object of our faith. All of those in Hebrews 11 are examples Christ is the object of our faith. We have the author of our faith here. We have the one who stands at the end of our course and the one alone to whom we must look in this race. Paul says this, we are to look to him. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Holy Spirit must turn our eyes away from ourselves and turn them to Christ. New birth enables us to do this. This is the life of faith. Looking denotes a trusting by faith, a hope, an expectation beyond a bare intellectualism. Just as the saints of old left their earthly homeland, we covered that this morning, they were looking for that heavenly country. Just as those who were bitten by the serpent in the wilderness looked to the serpent lifted up on the pole, so you must look to Christ. Looking to Christ is looking in faith and receiving into our hearts what he has done, who he has promised to be for us, and with an expectant hope forward, looking forward to all that awaits us. So looking denotes a trusting by faith, a hope, an expectation beyond bare intellectualism. But looking to Christ also means that you cannot look anywhere else. In this race, you cannot look anywhere else. You have a singular vision. You can't, <laughs> you can't be like one of those freakish-looking pugs whose eyes look east and west at the same time. You wonder how they don't run into a wall everywhere they walk. It's just not a normal-looking animal, okay? God has a sense of humor. Those dogs, I think, are just completely lost. They're just ugly. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry for you pug owners out there. Um, pugs can't look to Christ. <laughs> They're looking two different ways. Their eyes are just messed up. Faith has a singular vision. Faith has a singular vision. It looks to nothing else. Listen to uh, the Babe Ruth of Christianity here, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this, the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be an instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. End quote. Look to Christ and Christ alone. He is the author and perfecter of our faith and he alone it's been granted to us to believe, Philippians 1.29, and what he has begun in us, he will bring to completion, Philippians 1.6. The grace you have to run is from him. 
The strength you have to run is from him. The accomplishment of the race is from him. The Apostle John says in 1 John 5, 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Through his spirit, he is working in us efficaciously. He's affecting that change in us. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Not a little something, but nothing. As we look to Jesus, we must look to what supported Christ in his unparalleled suffering as an example for our encouragement. What does the text say? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, what supported Christ in his sufferings, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy that was set before him. His joy was the glory of God. It was the accomplishment of all that God had set out for him to do, to take on a body, to live obediently, to suffer, to die, to redeem a people, and to rise again. Ultimately, it was a life fully aimed at the eternal glory of God. Now, if the glory of God be the chief motivator of Christ, it must be that for us also. And this overriding joy of the glory of God says... It made Christ endure the cross and despise the shame. Joy and hope in God produced endurance. Let me say that again. Joy and hope in God produced endurance. Lingering death, lingering pain, lingering cruelty, mockery, and shame. And in the face of all of these, he endured to the end. And our text says he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. No cross, beloved, no crown. No cross, no crown. His sufferings were only a precursor to the glory that awaited him. Romans 8:18, for I consider brothers and sisters that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Well, beloved, consider the motive of perseverance. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Consider them and be wise. Consider the manner of our perseverance. Lay aside everything that hinders and be killing sin. Consider the mandate of perseverance. We must run, agonize with endurance the race marked out for us by God. And finally, and chiefly consider the man of perseverance. Christ is before us as the author, the perfecter, and the exemplar. God knows you're weary. Some of you have battled a lot personally, professionally, spiritually. And I say to you, keep running. God knows you feel like the world is crushing in on you. Keep running. Maybe you've had trouble in your marriage. Keep running. Maybe you've had trouble in the church. Keep running. God knows. God sees all those lavishing in the world's goods while you struggle. Keep running. Lift up your drooping hands. 
strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, look to Christ, fix your eyes on him, and keep running. Keep running, beloved. You have the promise of God in Romans 8, 17. If we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is truth. It is clear. It's convicting. And it's obvious, Lord. May you grant us, by your grace, obedience to run. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses to the life of faith. Let us run with endurance. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily clings to us. Let us look to Christ. Holy Spirit, grant us minds and hearts to hunger for him more and more. Forgive our sins, Lord. Forgive us where we have been weighed down with the things of the world and we're not running the race with endurance. Grant us this evening to meditate on these things as we sit around with our families and we talk about you. Grant us to think clearly and profoundly about the weights in our life and grant us to run with endurance. In Christ's name we ask, amen.